So, we are continuing um, our series in Mark. Um, we've been through the first two chapters uh, the past couple weeks, and we're continuing in Mark 3. So, we're going to look at a, a passage in Mark 3, um, and we're going we're to start there. We're actually going to go kind of all over Scripture and, and hit a bunch of passages. Um, don't worry, everything is going to be up on the screen for you, um, but we're going to start in Mark 3. Um, so, if you have your Bibles, open up, and, and we're going to pick up uh, in... Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, uh, where it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, he, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So a little bit of context here. Um, Jesus is, is, is kind of well into his ministry here. He's already called um, a few of his disciples, not all of them yet. Uh, but he started teaching. He's been performing miracles. And he has this following. He's got lots of people um, coming to, to hear him teach and coming to, to be healed. And some of them have these unclean spirits, uh, these demons that, um, for him to, to cast out. And, and that's where I want to focus on, um, at least for, for the beginning, is, is this interaction between uh, Jesus and, and the unclean spirits. It was the last couple verses of that passage um, where, where the demons, when they see him, they cry out, they fall down before him, they cry out, you are the son of God, and he strictly orders them not to make him known. Um, and this is kind of a, a curious uh, interaction. It's actually not the first time that this has shown up in the book of Mark. Um, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, um, the similar thing happens when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. It says, um, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, holy one of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And a little later on, um, a couple verses later in Mark, it says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so this, this is a really interesting theme. It shows up in, in other Gospels, um, but it's, um, it's most uh, present here in Mark. Um, so we see the, Jesus, the demons, they recognize Jesus. They acknowledge him for who he is, Holy One of God, Son of God, but he doesn't permit them to speak. He silences them. And the question is, like, why? Um, and that's a question that Scripture doesn't answer outright. It's kind of a mystery. Um, there have been a bunch of theories that have been put forward um, some good and some kind of weird. Um, some of them have been that Jesus wanted people focusing on his words and not his miracles. Um, another theory is that Jesus didn't want to be identified with the demons. He didn't want people thinking like, how do the demons know this guy? So that's why he silenced them. Um, one of them claimed that uh, Jesus himself didn't believe that he was the son of God and that's why he wanted them to be quiet. Um, and then a lot of commentaries are just silent on this piece. They kind of skip over. They don't really address it at all. Um, so I'd like to, if I may be so bold, try to bring some perspective to this. Um, and I don't claim to have the answer on this question. Um, but I think that looking at this can help us grasp um, one thing, and that's, that's how Jesus approaches relationship with us. 
Um, so that, that's my hope uh, for this morning is that um, when you walk away from here, you have uh, a little bit of a deeper understanding or, or maybe just even a curiosity into uh, how Jesus approaches relationship with us. Um, and the punchline here, if you want to zone out for the next 40 minutes or so, is that it, it's humbly. We see humility in Jesus approaching his relationship to us. Please don't zone out. Okay, thanks. So we're going to take a bit of a roundabout way to get there. Um, we've got no Patriots game today. We can go as long as we want. Um, I know Travis threatens that a lot, but you know that he doesn't go all that long. I get up. You have not seen me up here all that often. You have no idea how long I'm going to preach. I don't know how long I'm going to preach. Um, so let's see. Um, so the first thing that I want to focus on um, is that I like to acknowledge um, our perspective when we come to Scripture. And what I mean by that is that um, our tools for our resources for understanding Jesus and understanding the gospel, like here in 2022, we sit in a pretty good place. And by that, I mean we're 2,000 years past the end of biblical history, so we've got the whole story right here. You can go online and look up a one-year Bible reading plan, and then if you read for 20 or 30 minutes a day, you can cover 100% of God's revealed word. And then on top of that, we've got commentaries and scholars and podcasts and bumper stickers and that are building on this knowledge and helping us understand God's word a little better. And I think that um, while having that whole picture is a really cool thing, I think it can also um, make it a little more difficult for us to engage and appreciate the stories in here because we know what the ending is. So we don't really know what it's like to be in the midst of it and to, to not know what's going to happen. Um, kind of like the, the second time you watch a movie, like you're not, you're not as immersed in the story because you know the resolution. Um, on the other hand, um, let's look at the pandemic as, as an example. And I know someone out there is probably counting how many times, how many consecutive Sundays we bring up COVID. It's going to keep happening, okay? Um, but... One day we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have books that are going to be written about this pandemic, and they're going to have all the facts about why it started, how it spread, uh, what was the right way to deal with it, wrong way to deal with it. Um, th- these are going to be books that have a beginning and an end that people can just read through at some point, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, and they're going to have the whole picture of the COVID-19 pandemic. But today, we're living in the midst of that, and man, there's so much uncertainty, Right. Like, we're still learning, like, what happens when you get COVID. How many times can you get COVID? How many shots do you need? Uh, How many COVIDs are there? And there's a lot of disagreement. Like, we hear from different people, different things, and you've got to decide who you want to believe. And then the biggest question is, like, when is this thing going to end, or is it going to end? And it it just stinks not knowing, right? Like, there's so much uncertainty around not having the full picture. So with that, I hope that we can appreciate what we have in having the full picture of Scripture right here from from Genesis to Revelation. Um, I can read uh, a passage from Exodus, and then I can flip over to the Gospel of John, and those those were written probably more than a thousand years apart, but they're only separated in my Bible by like this much. And I can look at those two two passages, and then I can read a commentary, and it can fill in my understanding of Jesus and the Gospel. So that's, that's my first point, is acknowledging where we stand, what our perspective is. And, and second point, um, this is going to be a little obvious, but um, knowing, knowing that we have the full picture here, um, when it comes to Jesus and his mission in the gospel, as we go through scripture, there is a progressive unfolding of that picture as we go through the Bible. So when, if we start in the Old Testament, there are some, some kind of vague, hazy uh, 
hazy ideas of who Jesus is, that's made abundantly more clear in the Gospels. And then that's completed when we get to Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament. So there's, there's this like progressive, uh, progressive unfolding of the person of Jesus and, and of the gospel. And, and you can say, yeah, that's pretty obvious. You know, we need all of scripture to understand who Jesus is and what the gospel is. But for this morning, my hope is that we can kind of like remove ourselves from our current perspective and think about what is, not what does this look like for us sitting here in the church in 2022, but what might this have looked like for someone of Jesus's time, the people that Jesus rubbed elbows with 2,000 years ago? So I'm going to try to demonstrate this with a little exercise, and I'm going to ask you guys to do something kind of weird, um, something that you've probably never been asked to do in church before, but let's pretend for like 20 minutes that we don't know Jesus. Can you guys do that? So let's pretend that we're reading the story, let's pretend that we're watching the movie for the very first time, and we're going to look at a couple verses throughout the Old Testament and then into the Gospels, and we're going to try to understand the perspective um, of the, the people who were living there at the time. Um, so if we think about a, a Jew uh, of Jesus' time, um, they're expecting a Messiah. The Old Testament um, says it's going to happen. And we have a couple examples here. Um, you could pull out countless verses from the Old Testament. We don't have time to do that. So I picked out a couple of verses that speak a little more explicitly about the coming Messiah. And the first one um, is in Isaiah 9. And you might have heard this last month when we were celebrating Advent. But it says, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Next one in, in Zechariah, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then lastly, in, in Isaiah 7, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So those are just a few. Like I said, there are countless other verses in the Old Testament that we could go. And we can see here, as, as, uh, as Christians in 2022, we can look at these verses and see how they point to Jesus. But if you're someone living around the time of Jesus, your Bible only has an Old Testament. So if we, if we look at these as if we'd never heard of Jesus, we can see that this, this, there's some kind of like vague picture of this Messiah, and there's some thing that we can, things that we can pick up on. Um, like he's born of a virgin, he's, he's, a, he's a ruler, he's a righteous but humble king, um, and, and other things from other passages. But really, it's, it's kind of it's, it's cloudy and confusing. Like there's, there's not a super clear picture that we have today of who Jesus is. And then in the Gospels, Jesus comes on the scene and we take the next step in this progressive unfolding of, of this picture throughout Scripture. And the, this Messiah figure becomes much clearer, but, but still not completely clear. And the four, the four Gospels tell the story of how Jesus, his character, his nature, who he is, uh, is, is revealed further. And I'll give a couple more examples, um, most of these in Mark, but um, we're actually going to start with a verse in Luke, um, where, um, again, kind of going back to the Advent story in Luke 2, an angel speaking to the shepherds about the birth of Jesus. And they, the angel says, For unto you 
is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Next verse in in Mark 1, this is John the Baptist speaking. This is still before Jesus has come. Um, And he says, and he preached saying, after me is he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then next uh, in Mark 1, this, this is Jesus' actual baptism. And, and when he, he being Jesus, came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So as, as Jesus' ministry begins here, this picture becomes a little more clear. In, in these verses, we saw um, some more of the, the language, like the Jesus that we're familiar with. Um, he's the beloved son of God. He, he takes away sin, the savior. Um, but keep in mind, like we, we have these verses here in scripture. For people of Jesus' time, like these things had not yet been collected yet in, in scripture. These were different things that were spoken to, to different people, to shepherds in a field, uh, to followers of, of John the Baptist, and, and, and so on. And they still didn't have the rest of the New Testament to help them understand what does it mean that he takes away sin? What does it mean that he's the Savior, or the Lamb of God? So as Jesus begins his ministry, um, and he begins uh, preaching his first messages, and he calls his first few disciples, um, by the time we get to Mark 3, he's called um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. And he says, I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. So we see these people... Um, Large crowds start to follow Jesus, and then a few of them, uh, these, these four so far who have left everything to, to follow him, remember what they had to go on. It was these verses in the Old Testament, and then whatever they had heard about Jesus, and whatever they had read about in the newspaper about him. So I'm, I'm convinced that, that these people, they knew that Jesus was really something special, but they didn't really get it fully yet, uh, all of who he was and what he came to do. They didn't have that full picture that we do. And, and as, as we move throughout the Gospels and, and throughout the ministry of Jesus, this, this progressive unfolding continues. It wasn't made immediately clear the moment that Jesus uh, began his ministry. Um, one other interesting point to call out is later on in Mark 4, um, when Jesus is with his disciples, they're in the boat and there's the storm, and Jesus calms the storm and then the wind and the waves listen to him. And his disciples, in Mark 4, 41, it says, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So you can see they're, they're, still, they're still understanding. They're still understanding the person of, of, of Jesus. And even as, as we go beyond the Gospels, our understanding of Jesus would still be incomplete if God hadn't inspired Paul and Peter and, and John and the other New Testament writers um, and I'm going to give you just one example of that uh, in Colossians. Um, this is one of my favorite verses. Uh, in Colossians, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all these things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And for me, this is like, this is one of those mind-blowing verses. Like, we, we see that the person of Jesus is that he's not just the, the Messiah, the Savior who came to earth to rescue us, but we see 
Jesus goes so much more beyond that. He's, everything was actually created through him, and, and he's actively holding everything together. And you could pick out any other verse in the New Testament, and, and it fills in more of this picture of, of who Jesus is. If we look in, in Romans, he's the new Adam. Uh, in Hebrews, he's the high priest. He's the liberator in, in Galatians and in Philippians. He's, he's our hope and joy. And there, there's so much more, obviously, we can't go into everything. Um, but, but the point is, is that even at the time when Jesus's earthly ministry had concluded, there was still a lot that was left to be revealed about him. So there's, there's this progressive revelation of Jesus throughout the Bible from the Old Testament Gospels and then the, the rest of the New Testament. Um, and, and where Jesus actually steps into history is, is kind of at the, the midpoint of this. He's, he, he, he stepped in and he walked this earth before that, that picture was completed. And I think this is something that's very intentional by God. Um, Jesus could have said much more about himself than he actually did. If, if all of Paul's writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Jesus could have, Jesus could have taught that about himself. He could, have, he could have written Colossians himself. But instead, he lets people question a bit. Um, the, the disciples asking, who is this man? Um, and, and we see in other passages, uh, his hometown neighbors ask when he does something in his hometown, he says, isn't this, isn't this guy Mary's son? We see a lot of like, who is this Jesus person? And Jesus even goes so far as to actively, he, he actually conceals his identity a little bit. And this is where we come back to the interactions with the demons. And what was unique about the demons, I think, is that no, nobody else around Jesus really understood who he was. Nobody else had that full picture except for the demons. They knew him. They recognized him. They call, they're the ones who call him son of God, holy one of God. And uh, Jesus actually silences them. Um, and, and scripture uses really strong language here. It says he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And Jesus does the same thing to, to Peter later on in, in the Gospels when Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about him. Um, so, so we see that like, he's, act, he's, he's going to actively like, conceal who he is to, to these people around him, which seems really counterintuitive, right? Like why, it's kind of like the opposite of the great commandment. Like why would he do this? Uh, the great commission, excuse me. Um, so I want to tell you guys a, a quick story um, um, about one of my friends. Uh, I, I work at, at Unum. We're, we're an insurance company. We're pretty large. We've got like 10,000 employees and we're on the Fortune 250 or something like that. And it'll make sense why I tell you that in a sec. Um, but one of my good friends, Emily, started, uh, she started working there about a year or so before I did. And she told me this story once um, where it, it was her very first week um, working, at, uh, working at Unum, this huge campus, huge building. And she was in the cafeteria uh, getting lunch. And I think for her, it was kind of like the, the first day of high school kind of thing where she's like trying to figure out how everything works and what the routine is and, and kind of get through it. And there's this guy who just happens to be next to her, and he strikes up a conversation. He says, hey, hey, I'm Mike. How you doing? And she says, hi, I'm Emily. And, and they chat for a minute. And uh, after chatting for a minute, Mike asks her, well, Emily, what do you do here? And Emily says, well, I'm, I'm new, but I'm learning how to manage disability claims. And then she says, Mike, what do you do? And, and Mike says, well, I'm the CEO. <laughs> and she didn't have real life. It took her a sec to have a follow-up question to that. But that, that changes that interaction, right? When suddenly 
Emily realizes like she's not just talking to some other guy in the cafeteria who strikes up a conversation with her. She's talking to the boss, and she's one of his 10,000 worker bees. So an, another example uh, I want to give is that uh, if, if you're visiting here or if, uh, if you're, you're on the new side here, I, I hope someone has come up to you and, and introduced you and made you feel welcome because uh, we're a family here. That's kind of what we do. Um, but imagine if next week, just picture this, if Tom Brady and his family walk in the door and they decide to visit Summit Community Church, we'd probably treat them a little differently, right? You know, we'd, we'd try to act normal, but um, I know we'd, we'd probably like frame his connection card and then we'd fight over whose small group he joins. Like we'd, we'd try, but he, he wouldn't have a normal new visitor experience, right? And, and my point is, is that for better or for worse, we, we tend to interact differently with people of high status, whether it's fame, authority. It creates barriers to having normal and personal and even casual interactions and relationships. Um, so when my friend Emily, when she realized that the person she was talking to was, was the CEO, that's a much less casual conversation for her, right? She probably gets, she's probably a lot more uncomfortable. It's like, oh, but I better go back to my desk and look busy. So. Let's look for a second at what this looks like for a first century Jewish person. Um, so remember, your Bible only has the Old Testament. Um, where I want to start is by looking at, at the actual temple in Jerusalem. Um, so the temple, it's, it's the spiritual and, and cultural center of Jerusalem and, and Judaism itself. And this is where God's presence dwells on earth. And the, the layout of the temple um, was actually, most of it was prescribed in the Old Testament. It was given by God to Moses. And what it looks like is, uh, what it looked like is that there was this series of outdoor courts that lead up to the temple building itself. And the, the outermost section was called the, the Court of the Gentiles. And you can probably guess that um, anyone could be there, Jew or Gentile. Um, it's the furthest court away from the temple. And then as we move in, the next section is called the outer court, um, also called the court of women. Um, and, and that court, it was separated from the court of the Gentiles by, by a fence. Um, and this is where a lot of the day-to-day -day activity happened. Uh, there was a market here um, where if you were coming to the temple to make a sacrifice, um, you could exchange your money there. You could buy an animal to sacrifice. Um, if you're familiar with the story of, of Jesus turning over the, the tables of the money changers, that, that's where this happened. Um, and, and only Jewish people were allowed to enter the, the outer court, um, and only if you were ritually clean. So if you were a Gentile or if you were a ritually unclean Jewish person, you were not allowed to go beyond the court of the Gentiles. You could not come into the outer court. Next is, next is the inner court, and this is the, the court that's surrounding the temple. This is where the sacrifices were made. Um, only men were allowed to enter here, so if you're a woman, uh, woman, you had to stay in the court of women, hence the name. Um, this is still outside the actual temple building itself. And then when we get to the temple building, um, most people were not actually allowed to enter the temple. Only the priests in the tribe of Levi were allowed to enter um, and this is where um, a lot of the, the priestly activity within the temple took place. So um, if you remember the, the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Zechariah and telling him about the, the birth of John the Baptist, this is where that took place. Um, now the temple wa was divided into two sections. There, there was the, the main section was called the Holy Place, 
um, where, where most of the activity took place. And then the back section was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the main temple by this huge curtain. And behind this curtain in the Holy of Holies was where the actual presence of God dwelt in the temple. Uh, this was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And only one person, only the high priest, was allowed to enter that section. And he could only enter it once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the, the point of walking through this is that 99% of the general population at that time was accustomed to being far away from this area. You were like multiple courts away from, from the presence of God. And, and the closer you got, the more restricted it was. Fewer people allowed until only one person once a year is allowed in, in the actual presence of God. And if you were a Jewish person around the time of Jesus, you would have been very used to this, that, that proximity to the presence of God was very restricted. And that's actually for, for good reason. Um, there are a couple stories um, in the Old Testament of proximity to God that I want to touch on um, that I think will, will give some color to this. Uh, the first one is in Exodus. Um, so after the Israelites have come out of Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Um, this is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments uh, from God. And I'm going I'm to read a couple verses of this story, and I want you to try to picture, um, try to picture in your mind what, what this looked like as I read it. Um, so, so they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is about to go up the mountain. Um, Moses has already heard from God, and he's already told the Israelites, don't come near the mountain or you'll die. And this is what happens um, in Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, try and picture this in your head, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Now at this point, I'm picturing this being like kind of sensory overload for the Israelites. And then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, can you imagine if you're just an Israelite in that camp, how terrifying this would have been? So this, this, is, this is a close encounter with God that the, the Jewish people would have been very familiar with. And, and the second one that I want to look at um, is, is in the book of Isaiah. Um, so the prophet Isaiah has, has a vision. And, and again, try, try and picture this scene as I read it. Try, try and imagine what this looks like. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we've got the, these two like awe-inspiring, terrifying, really, scenes where, where the presence of God is, is this fearsome, um, even like a, ter a terrible and dangerous thing. And this is not because God, God is like some, some evil God. This, this is just who he is. He's this holy mighty, infinite, majestic God, and we're, we're his little creation. 
Um, and I wish I could go a little more into that, um, but for the sake of time, um, if you want to get a little better sense of that, re- read the, the last couple chapters of Job. Um, and that, that'll give you, that'll kind of fill in this picture a little bit. But in this context, it's actually, it, it seems like it's a good thing that access to the, to the Holy of Holies in the temple is restricted because it, it must have been a pretty fearful thing to go in there. And, and that's actually, that's even mentioned in, in, in the story of um, Gabriel speaking to Zechariah. When Gabriel appears to, to Zechariah in the temple to tell him about John the Baptist, it says that he's gripped with fear. And he's probably thinking about this uh, same thing as Isaiah, like, woe is me, woe is me. So my point in going through these verses is that, um, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's difficult to have a, a normal, a casual, or a personal relationship with someone of high status. So if you're nervous talking to your CEO, or if, if you're thrilled to get an autograph from your favorite actor or athlete or, or something, how much more so the God of all creation, right? And it's into this context that Jesus enters the world. Jesus being fully equal with God the Father, this, this holy, infinite God, he's, he's the firstborn over all creation, uh, as we read in Colossians, and as, as we sang earlier, name above all names. But he didn't enter the world that way. You've heard um, that, we, we, we've talked about it through Advent, that Jesus came into the world humbly. He was born in a manger. He was a carpenter's son. And, and Paul describes this, this humility in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, where he, he's talking about Jesus. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, Jesus, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he gave it up. He emptied himself, and he came, he came into the world humbly, and this was not just a hipster move on his part. He did this for a reason. He did it for a lot of reasons. Um, Jesus going to the cross to be crucified, this is the pinnacle of, of humility. That's not what I'm focusing on this morning. What I want to focus on this morning is that, that Jesus didn't just die the humble death that we needed for him to save us, but he also came into the world and lived the humble life that we needed for him to have a relationship with us. So again, he, he came into the world humbly and he lived the humble life that we needed for him to have a relationship with us. Jesus could have come into the world in a way that matched his infinitely high status as God himself. I don't know really what that would have looked like, but I can imagine that the reaction of people around him would have been the same as Isaiah, as the Israelites at, at Mount Sinai, and as, as Zachariah in the temple. But he didn't do that. Instead, he, he empties himself, he, he releases his equality with God, and he even goes so far as to conceal the full extent of who he is to the people around him. And just imagine how frustrating that must have been for him, huh? And, and the result is that the Gospels, they are full of story after story of personal connection between small little people and the God of the universe that never would have been possible otherwise. So to say that again, Jesus' humbling of himself is giving up equality with God. This creates opportunity for him to connect with people, for him to, to be that, that guy in the lunchroom who comes over and just strikes up conversation and, and to build relationships with people, like normal, personal, and even casual relationships with this God of all creation. And he's, he's not as a king, not as a person of, of high status because he gave that up, 
but, but as a man, just, just a friend. And, and I, hope, I hope you notice as we continue going throughout Mark, uh, these, these stories of, of personal connection between Jesus and people. I'm going to touch on a couple of them here. Um, one of the things that I love about uh, the, the Gospel of Mark in particular is that um, it, it emphasizes the, the physical touch that, that Jesus utilizes. And um, I think that we can kind of appreciate that a little more today in, in this world where we're so stug, starved for, for hugs and handshakes. Um, but g- going back to, to Mark 1, um, there's a story where, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And when he does so, he actually takes her by the hand and he helps her up. And, and he does the same thing with, with a little girl, uh, someone's daughter, uh, later on in Mark 5. And again, this is a presence that, that's so holy, so mighty, that the Israelites, they needed these physical barriers to separate themselves from the presence of God. And, and here's Jesus helping the sick old lady out of bed. And then the next story in Mark 1 um, is, is where Jesus heals a leper. And uh, again, in, in the days of quarantine, maybe we can identify just a little bit more with the life of a leper. Uh, we, we had COVID come through our house a couple weeks ago, um, and we were quarantining um, with a three-year-old. That's, that's kind of hard. We're in a small house, so we had to get out. We, we went for a couple walks in our neighborhood, um, and we saw some folks that we, that we know just like walking their dogs, and we had to be like, no, don't come near us. We have COVID. <laughs> So we had that experience, and, and obviously for us, it's just two weeks, but for, for the leper, it's a lifetime um, on top of everything else going on. Uh, but, but this leper tells Jesus, you can make me clean, and, and Mark in, in the gospel, he says that Jesus was filled with compassion, and he reaches out and touches the man. And we know that he didn't need to do that. He, he could have healed him from six feet away, but, but just imagine this moment for that leper of Jesus reaching out and touching him. Like, who, who knows the last time that anybody came remotely near this guy? And, and Jesus comes and touches him and creates this connection. Um, another example, the story that we read last week uh, that Travis took us through in Mark 2 with, with the, the man um, who's let down the roof by his friends, he's paralyzed. Um, when, when Jesus addresses him, um, he doesn't just say, your sins are forgiven. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And there's a similar story uh, later on in Mark, of this, this woman who, who's bleeding, and, and Jesus heals her, and, and he turns to her, and he says, daughter, daughter. Again, this woman who had probably been an outcast, because she was, she was ritually unclean for, for, I forget how many years, it was a long time, and Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. The, the, these are terms of, of affection and endearment, and, and we could keep going. It's like stories and stories through all the, gospel of, uh, all the gospels of these moments of personal connection between this infinite, holy God of the universe and, and these people. And, and who knows how many stories weren't even recorded in Scripture. Uh, there's one more that I want to touch on uh, that's from the Gospel of John. And this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Um, he's spending the evening with his 12 closest friends, his disciples, And in in John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a bowl, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And I think this this is just the the incredible example. it, It points out explicitly that Jesus... He knows he has all the authority of God. He's about to return 
to his throne, to his status, and one of his last actions is, is to kneel down and, and wash these, these grimy feet of his disciples. Um, so talk about a, a personal, even like an, an intimate connection. And, and one of the things that he tells them that night is that I no longer call you servants. Instead, I have called you friends. So Jesus, this, this is incredible. Jesus, this, this God of the universe, he considered himself when he was walking the earth with his, with his disciples, he considered himself to be not among servants but among friends. So if, if, if um, you may have heard of uh, The Chosen, uh, this new TV series about the, the ministry of Jesus. Um, in one of the, the earlier episodes, um, Jesus is with this group of children. This, this story is not in scripture, um, but Jesus is sitting with this group of children um, and he's telling him about this woman that he helped. And this little girl asks him, well, this woman, what, was she your friend? And, and Jesus says, she is now. And again, that's not in scripture, but I think that that's an awesome picture of what, what it's like to, to have an encounter with Jesus. Uh, he's your friend now. It's like you're, you're the only one in the universe. It's just him and you. And that does not happen if Jesus had never emptied himself and humbled himself like Paul describes in Philippians. But in doing so, Jesus removes every barrier to personal connection, to personal relationship with him. So he could approach you as a friend and invite you into relationship. And, and this term, personal relationship with Jesus, probably cliche at this point, but um, I, I think some, some people in the room need to hear this. I, I, I wrestled with this the past week or so as I was preparing this message. Um, I want you to ask yourselves and ex- examine your relationship with God today. Is, is your relationship with God a personal relationship? And what that means is that it's not like a, a CEO and an employee or, or a football star and a fan. Those are not personal relationships. But, but Jesus came humbly so we could have personal relationship with, with the God who's just so infinitely far beyond a CEO or, or athlete or, or what have you. So if, if, you're, if you're picturing, uh, sorry, if you're questioning your value to God or if you're questioning God's affection for you, know this morning, please hear this morning, that, that Jesus didn't only come to redeem your life from sin. He didn't only come to write your name in the book of life and guarantee your eternity. That in itself is, is mind-blowing and infinitely more that we deserve, but he went even further than that. He came so that you could have personal and intimate connection, friendship with the God of the universe where all these barriers are torn down and you are no longer a servant but a friend. Amen. So are, are, you, are you trembling before God like the Israelites in Mount Sinai? Or maybe you're, you're in a mindset like the Pharisees who, who thought that relationship with God meant adhering to these certain commandments or standards. That, that's an impersonal relationship. And my prayer for, for you and, and for me too is that Jesus would meet you right there and that he'd transform your relationship with him like these stories in scripture that we read about and that Jesus can add you to that list of, of his friends. And, and last point here is, uh, for us friends of Jesus, let's also not lose sight of, of who it is that befriended us. He stepped off his throne to approach us, but he's since returned there. So let, let's, let's go back to Philippians. Um, I, I read a chunk of the verse. We're going to read a little more. Um, so starting again in, in Philippians 2, verse 6. 
talking about Jesus again, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the part we already went through. What happens next in verse 9? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And talk about like high status, like there is no status higher than that. And this didn't happen when Jesus was walking the earth. Plenty of people asked in Jesus' time, who is this man, Jesus? Who is this man? But this is going to happen one day that at his name, every knee is going to bow. And that day is coming. And and the fact uh, that Jesus humbly invites us into relationship with him, as I talked about earlier, not an impersonal relationship, not like a CEO, an employee, but a personal relationship, that, that does not take anything, that should not take anything away from our worship of how holy and mighty he is. Instead, it should transform it. I think it's, it's, it's one thing for us to, to witness uh, and see the, the glory of God, the power of God on display, like, like those stories that we read through in, in the Old Testament. Um, or, or if you have a moment where you see like an amazing sunset or you're, you're watching like the power of a thunderstorm or you're standing on the beach and you're just looking at, over the expanse of the infinite ocean and you just have this moment of like, wow, the glory of God is on display and you know that he's this infinite, holy and mighty God. He's the name above every name. He's, he's the Lord over all creation. But the thing is that you know that guy. He's your friend. And as he's sitting on his throne in heaven, you're not some far off subject. You're not one of the masses, but he values you infinitely. How incredible is that? Do you want to worship a God like that? And some of Jesus' disciples had had an experience like that while he was walking the earth. After he had, he had been with them for a couple years and he takes his three closest friends up on this mountain. Peter, James, and John, he walks up on the mountain. Um, I won't read the passage for the sake of time, but this is, this is known as the transfiguration. Uh, but he takes them up on the mountain and, and he shows them his glory. And, and what happens is it's kind of similar to uh, the, the story that we read um, in Exodus, this cloud settles over the mountain and Jesus is transformed and his clothes become radiant white and and his three friends they they see not this grimy carpenter's son turned rabbi but they see the holy one of God in all of his glory they see their friend on the throne and one day you and I are going to have that very real experience we know today that Jesus our savior reigns in heaven but one day it's going to get really real. Re- Revelation tells of what's going to happen. This is the last verse that, that I'll read this morning. Um, but, but this verse tells us of what's going to happen one day. Don't know when it will be, but we know it's coming. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God 
saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you're going to be one of that multitude that's worshiping him there. And we're going to see this multitude. We're going to see all the friends that Jesus made. And, and this last part, this, this, isn't, this isn't in Scripture, but I think this is what, what's going to happen in that moment, is that Jesus is he's going to be on his throne. I think he's going to make eye contact with you. There's going to be this multitude that nobody can count, but he's going to look right at you. And you're going to see the love that he has for you in his eyes. And he's going to be so glad that you're there. And you and I and all of his friends, we're going to fall on our knees and worship him. Amen? Amen. Father God, thank you. God, we have so much to be grateful for. That You have come to rescue us. You have come to redeem us from sin. You've come to, to guarantee our eternity of worshiping you in heaven, Lord. And Father, we're so grateful that you did more than that. You came to, to be our friend. You came for us to have a personal connection with the God of all creation. And then, Father, I, I pray that we would just sit in that. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this room and who's, who's listening on, on the live stream, Lord. I pray that we would have those moments of just knowing that you are here, you are close, you are personal, and you are our friend, Lord. And I pray that from that we would just we would just worship you in awe and in love and in affection for the mighty God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.